Good morning. I'm glad that you can join for the online worship gathering this morning. So uh, we hope that we'll be meeting together soon where everyone can meet, but we're, we're thankful that some can now. And we're thankful that you that can't at the moment can, can join in this way and we can spend time in God's word. And so let me pray for us and then we'll spend time together in Philippians chapter 2. Lord, we pray that you would lead and guide us in all truth. This morning, that you would be the one that teaches us, that you'd be the one that takes the eternal truth of your word, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, and that you would show us uh, more fully who you are, and the ways that you love us, and what it means for us. We thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this week, uh, in a lot of ways, was a, a difficult week. There was a, a lot of hardness, uh, uh, sadness, turmoil, upheaval. We see it all around us uh, in so many ways. You know, last week we talked about injustice. We talked about uh, how God has made all men in his image and what that means for us and how we're to seek those things. And and then we see uh, so much just uh, unrest around all these things. And it's difficult uh, to get our heads around what that looks like in the way that we should live and and love others and support people in the midst of that. And uh I was thinking this week of uh, as I was reading through uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, this week in my my own reading of Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers and to be a follower of Jesus, that we are called to be peacemakers. And so you look at the world that angle. Well, what exactly does that look like? Or or in Second Corinthians, chapter five, where it says Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And thinking of all the things that are happening in our life right now, or in our world, I should say, right now, and in injustice and in racial inequality and struggles that are there, um, we're still dealing uh, with the pandemic and how do we re-engage in society and what does that look like and, and people still wrestling over what that means. Um, we have an election coming this year, a presidential election. Uh, in, in my lifetime, at least, uh, uh, presidential elections always seem to bring out the the greatest divide in our country. People really struggle uh, with that. And as, as we get uh, kind of ramped up into an election cycle, it just leads to deeper division in a lot of ways. And so when we consider our calling to be ministers of reconciliation and peacemakers that we're called to follow Jesus and, and show a different way and what that looks like, that can be difficult to, to get our arms around exactly what that looks like. And so this morning, uh, I want us to spend some time in Philippians chapter 2 together, which we touched on, if you uh, were with us last week, uh, we, we touched on just a little part of that passage, but I really want us to, to dig in and think about what it calls us to there And so my hope is, as we come out of this pandemic, as we come out of this unprecedented time for so many of us uh, in our lives and the way things have been going and the way they look, that there's uh, a growing understanding uh, that we desperately need one another. That God calls us into relationships to care deeply for one another, to love each other. Jesus says very clearly, you'll know my disciples by the way they love one another. And, and that's difficult when we've been in quarantine and everything's shut down and the way all that looks, it's, it's difficult to love people when you can't see them, to serve and love them when we're not able to spend time face to face together. And so as those things, uh, as we get to kind of get back to some normalcy in the way we live and the way we operate, I'm hopeful uh, that we can 
fulfill our calling of really loving one another and, and caring for our friends and our neighbors and our community and all those around us. And so uh, with the difficulty of what's happening though right now, how do we do that? And so Philippians chapter 2 gives us a great help in looking at that and what that looks like and how to do that. And so this is the way I want us to look at Philippians chapter 2. First, uh, what is the call and why? And so what I mean by that is is Paul is calling us to what it looks like to live in our world and to live in difficult times and all the stuff that's around us. And so what is the call and why? Secondly, how do we get there? How do we grow in it? And lastly, he's going to point out some things that happen when we do. And so what is the call and why? How do we get there? And what happens when we do? And so let's just start right there at the beginning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And let's look at verses 1 through 4 to begin with. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And so I'm going to stop there for just a second. I want us just to think about what this what Paul's calling us to this humility uh, to to humble ourselves and to count others, as he says here in, in verse three, more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And it's something Paul will talk about a lot in, in his epistles. It's something, though, that's not just found there with Paul, but it's all the way through the Bible. Uh, you see it very clearly in Jesus' teaching and in his earthly ministry that we're called to love others, to put others first, to not just be all about ourselves. We see it all the way through Scripture. And Paul says here at the beginning, if there's any... Uh, participation in the spirit, any comfort from love, any encouragement in Christ, that this is what it would look like to be following Jesus, that we would love others and count them more significant than ourselves. Um, Jesus would say this in his ministry over and over. It's just calling people to be his disciples and to follow him. Luke chapter nine, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. But here's a question I want us to consider. Why is that said over and over throughout Scripture? Why does God keep calling us to this idea that we should humble ourselves and count others more significant than we are? And so we could go all the way back and and you get just a hint of it here if you go back uh, in Scripture and you follow it all the way through. But look at what Paul says here in verse two. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He says there's a joy associated with this unity and caring for others. And so I, I say this frequently here. You've probably heard it if you've been around Church of the Apostles for any uh, amount of time. We are not meant to be the center of the world. God is. We are created in his image and after his likeness to to love God and then to love people. And we're made this way. We're called to to do nothing, as he'll say here, out of selfish ambition, but to love and care for others because it's rooted in who God is and us being made in his image. And so I want you to think about uh, what that means. That truth is rooted in a great big foundational truth that we hold dear as Christians, as believers. 
And that is that God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who God is. That God is a perfect, loving community in and of Himself. And that's such an important distinction. And I want you to think about why that matters. Why that's important when we start to think about why we're called to love others and count them more significant than ourselves. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said, If you don't believe in the Trinity, then you have a defective God. And what he meant by that and what he'd go on to explain is that there's no Trinity. If, if God doesn't exist in this perfect, loving community, three in one, three persons, equally God, but yet distinct, loving each other perfectly and fully. If we throw that out or we don't understand that or we forget that truth that's presented in Scripture, we, we have a problem. That means that God couldn't love anyone until he created the world. Until he created beings to express his love and to receive love. And so then God would be dependent on his creation for love. But that's not what the Bible tells us. That's not what God reveals about who he is. God created us not to get love, but in order to give it. Jesus came to save us, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Not to meet his need for love, but in order to give love to us. And that's such a foundational and important truth. So often we get that wrong. We switch that. And we see other people in our life and those that we come into contact and we wrestle with and we see them as there to meet our needs. To fill us with the love that we need. And we, we can so quickly start to use other people or see them in that light and make it all about us rather than about them. We can do the same in our relationship with God. We make it all about us instead of loving and serving and caring about him and seeing him as the center of all things. And so we're made to be outwardly focused, loving and caring for others. And I think the truth is we know this in some very profound ways. I want you to think for just a moment. Maybe you've had this happen. Uh, a holiday, birthday, Christmas, whatever it is, you get the opportunity to, to give a gift to someone that you really love and care for. Right? Your, your children, spouse, best friends, parents, whoever it is. Those people in your life that you really love and care for. And you, you, you get the perfect gift for them. You ever had that happen? Where you, you, you know something they want that they're not expecting. It's, it's going to fit a need. They couldn't get it themselves. Whatever it is. But it, it kind of brings all these things together. And you're so excited to give them this gift. And we all know when this has happened, that it is so much better to give that gift than it is to, to get a great gift. To really be able to share with someone else and, and meet a need or, or care for them or, or present them with this gift that you know is going to bring joy. Right? And so instead of being about me and making myself at the center, you humble yourself, you're, you're seeking to love and care for them. And it's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful when we get the opportunity to do that. But so often what happens is we reverse the order and we make our lives all about ourselves, and we place ourselves right at the center. That's what our sinful nature does. That's how we struggle. We make it about me and what I want and what I think and what uh, the way I would come at it. And, and what happens is it leads to our identity being rooted and grounded in things that was never meant to be uh, rooted and grounded in. 
And so we start to get our identity uh, from our subjective opinions. We start to get our identity uh, from the way that uh, we, the things that we like and we dislike. And there's nothing wrong with having likes or dislikes. But our identity was never meant to be rooted and grounded in those things, standing over and above other people. But that's what we often do. We make it all about what I think and what I like and my experience. And I lay that over and I start to see everything from this view of myself at the center. And it leads to looking down on other people. And I don't like those people and I don't like the way they say it. And and they're wrong and they're not smart or they're whatever. And right at the beginning of that is myself at the center. And that's what ends up happening and coming out in that. But that's not what God is like. And that's not who we are in Him. Look at what Paul says here in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus comes and he lives the life that we haven't lived on our behalf to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then he dies the death that we deserve and he restores us back to this relationship with God by grace through faith. We're saved. We're brought into this relationship with the Father through what the Son has done. And then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and with us and is, is showing us and, and teaching us. But the way in which that happened, and as God reveals fully who he is and what he's like, Jesus comes and he humbles himself. And it says in verse seven, he emptied himself by taking the form of the servant of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He dies for us. That's what we talk about as the Incarnation. You know, verse 7 says he emptied himself. It's one of those uh, things you go to seminary and you talk about the word emptied. And what does that mean? The kenosis of Jesus and, and what happened there and what did he do? And I think what it means and what it brings us to is that the God of the universe that created all things, that holds all things by the power of his word, laid aside everything that is due to him, his throne, his power, his majesty over all of it. And he humbled himself to come to us. And it shows us this beautiful picture of what God is like and his love for us and the way that we should love and care for others. As Paul kind of points us to that and he makes this such a gospel issue. Look at who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we are now in him. It's the ultimate act of humility. Of Jesus coming to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so I want us just to think about that for a moment. The, the, the mind of Christ and what he was willing to do for us as he came to us. You know, it made me think of a, an old TV show. Maybe you used to watch this. I don't know if it's still on TV or not. But I would occasionally catch it with my kids or we'd watch an episode. It was a show called Undercover Boss. And it was a show built around the idea that a CEO or a president or an owner of some big company would go to work in his own organization. And he would do it undercover. People wouldn't know who he is. I remember watching an episode where uh, one of the, the CEO's 
owned a giant hotel chain and he went to work in his own hotel, making beds and cleaning up and and doing some of the more menial tasks. And it gave him an understanding of what his organization was like. And it's a little bit like that. It's nowhere near the fullness of what Jesus did, but that act of humility that he emptied himself and he came to us, that he subjected himself to his own creation. And it's such a beautiful picture of humility. Maybe a better example is the one C.S. Lewis used to use. That he'd say, if you want to try to get your head around the incarnation and the humility of Christ and what he's done for us, he said, uh, imagine yourself humbling yourself to become a slug or a crab or an insect. It's so beneath you, but he was willing to do that, to come to save us, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so when you become a believer, you put your faith in Jesus and you confess that you're a sinner and you repent and you say, I I cannot do this on my own and I, I don't deserve to stand in God's presence by my works and my doing. I desperately need Jesus to save me by grace, through faith and what Christ has done for us. And as Jesus comes into your life and he saves you and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell fully and completely in you and begins to uh, change you from one degree of glory to another. And you're this new creation. You now are at one. You have this unity with Jesus through the spirit, this unity with the father through what Christ has done. This is now who you are. And he said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit. You're going to humble yourself and begin to see others as more worthy than yourself. You're going to continue to to love and care for others. And please see this. Paul makes this a gospel issue. This goes to the very heart of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus, but now who we are. And so when we participate in the spirit, we humble ourselves to love and care for others and, and meet them where they are. And so I want us to think about what that looks like. How do we begin to do that? And I think a a big part of that is, is we hold fast to the convictions of the gospel. The centrality of the things that scripture tells us. We say this often here. We we want to be people of the word. God's word stands over us. What he says is truth. We let that guide and direct our life. We want to seek to follow him. We say this all the time, that discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. And we want to continue to do that. But here's the thing. In our society and where we live and the way the divisions that are there and the way people fight over different things and the the struggles that we see. Oftentimes what happens is we let our convictions over things that are secondary that are not clear gospel issues, that are other issues become primary and then we divide over those things. And in doing so, it causes all sorts of struggle and upheaval and promise just mess. And so I want us to think about what it would look like to count others more significant than ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't have convictions. It doesn't mean that there are not things that you care about that are not primary gospel issues right at the center. That's not wrong. And in fact, if we're thinking and we're taking the gospel of the lens and we're laying it over the things of our day and what's happening, we should be striving to have a conviction and how we would move forward and what it looks like. 
But when we start to think about how we interact with others, there needs to be a place where we define and we see the difference between the primary of the gospel of what God has done for us in Jesus and who we are in him. And it's by grace through faith and we should be wonderful, gracious, kind people that are meeting people in the middle of that. And our secondary things that we feel or we have convictions about that aren't necessarily directly uh, biblically mandated. Now, I'll give you an example. Forgive me, and I'll, I'll read from it because uh, he says it better than I can. But there was, uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago, Tim Keller, uh, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, wrote an article for the New York Times. They, they uh, gave him an opinion piece. And so conservative, Christian, complementarian, all the things that we say we are as a church, they allowed him this opinion piece in the New York Times. And I think it's partly because he's gracious and he meets people where they are and he talks uh, intelligently and he, he gives a biblical worldview, which is wonderful that he had the opportunity there to do it. But the, our, the title of the article was, How Do Christians Fit in a Two-Party System? And his answer was, they don't. And I want you to hear his reasoning, though, and what he says. He says, most political positions are not a matter of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. And so he's differentiating between uh, set things that the Bible clearly tells us, but then how we actually do them. He says, this does not mean that the church can never speak on social, economic, and political realities because the Bible often does. Racism is a sin, violating the second of the greatest commandments of Jesus, to love your neighbor. The biblical commands to lift up the poor and to defend the rights of the oppressed are moral imperatives for believers. And so he's talking about the things we looked at last week. These things are clearly what we're called to do. But then listen what he says. However, there are many possible ways to help the poor. Should we shrink the government and let private markets, capital markets, allocate resources? Or should we expand the government and give the state more of the power to redistribute wealth? Or is the path, or is the right path one of the many possibilities in between? The Bible does not give us exact answers to these questions for every time, place, and culture. So he says there's a wide way in which we should operate. Still holding fast to what scripture says. But then listen to the example he gives. I know of a man from Mississippi who was a conservative Republican and a traditional Presbyterian. He visited the Scottish Highlands and found the churches there as strict and as orthodox as he had hoped. No one so much as turned on a television on a Sunday. Everyone memorized catechisms and scripture. But one day he discovered that his Scottish Christian friends that he admired were, in his view, socialists. Their understanding of government economic policy and the state's responsibility was, by his thinking, very left wing, yet also grounded in their Christian convictions. He returned to the United States, not more politically liberal, but in his words, humbled and chastened. He realized that thoughtful Christians, all trying to obey God's call, could reasonably appear at different places on the political spectrum with loyalties to different political strategies. And so what he's saying is we're going to come up against uh, those within our own church and our community and our neighborhoods that can be holding fast to even Scripture, standing under God's Word, and see things played out in very different ways. And so that doesn't mean you throw out your convictions. 
It doesn't mean that you don't care about those things, but it does mean that we humble ourselves to listen to others. We don't get our primary identity from our political beliefs, but from Jesus. And that's really the second thing I want you to consider. How do we get to this? We see our identity in Jesus, not in these other things. Jesus came and he emptied himself and he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's how we are saved. It's how we are anything in our life. By grace, through faith, by an act of humility, by the God of the universe, he has come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and saved us. And that is now who we are in Jesus. Grace bought people that are saved by no doing of our own, but by God's humility on our behalf to come and meet us in the middle of this. And that's why Paul says in verse five, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is who you are in Jesus. And he says, you see all these things and you begin to live and see all of it through the lens of the gospel. And that leads you to, to counting others more significant than yourselves. Instead of your identity being, I'm right about this issue or I'm right about this issue and everybody needs to think about it the way I do. You can humble yourself. You can hold fast to the things that the Bible clearly tells us. And then love those around you, listening and meeting them where they are. You know, we talked about that at the end of last week. That a lot of times we need to stop and listen to our brothers and sisters around us. And hear their perspective and where they're coming from. Humble yourself, die to yourself, count the interests of others more so. A little later in the chapter, he'll come back and he'll talk about how we should do nothing with grumbling or disputing. Then he says that in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so to do that doesn't mean that you give up convictions or the things that you care about. But it means you humble yourself and truly listen. And the way in which we grow in that and we in our understanding and the practicality of that. And so we see it's not about me, but it's about who God is and what he's done for me in Jesus. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And you begin to see your identity rooted and grounded in Jesus. And the wonderful thing that happens when you do, you're accepted completely and totally and fully through what Jesus has done for you. Your identity is not being right. Your identity is not getting everybody to see uh, whatever hot button issue from your view. We hold fast to who God is and what he's done and we trust him and we rest in him and then we love people. And so when we think about growing in that, I mean, just a couple practical things that the Bible tells us. Maybe three that the Bible clearly tells us. One is that Jesus is with you and in you and remaking you through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a unity there with him. I read this this week and was convicted. Don't limit what God can do in and through you. The God of the universe who has defeated sin and death, who's come to do for you what you can never do for yourself, never leaves you and never forsakes you. And he is at work making you from one degree of glory to another. And so don't limit what God can do. And what, what I mean by that is so often people will hold an unbiblical view. They'll be ugly and harsh towards others. And they'll be like, well, that's just where I grew up. If you are in Jesus, that's limiting what God can do in you. 
Well, that's just the way I see it. And it's like, but is that what God says? And is that who he is and how he's being formed in you? And so don't limit what God can do in and through you in your life. The second thing, pray without ceasing. Pray for all people and all situations and all things. Especially people you disagree with. Especially people that you're struggling to understand where they're coming from. Especially people that make you upset. Continue to pray that God would give you that his heart for those people standing in front of you. I said this last week, but the third thing, listen well. Humble yourself by listening to the people around you. Trying to understand where they're coming from and why. doesn't mean that you'll agree with all of it, but it'll give you a greater understanding and have more meaningful conversations. And then the last one, and I don't know if this is biblical, maybe, maybe it is, I could probably make a case. Don't neglect meeting together is the habit of some. But I would say this is that face to face real relationships. You know, so often we end up lobbing bombs at one another on Facebook or Twitter or we're not even talking face to face. And somebody posts something and snarky comment and this and that. Don't do that. Engage in face to face relationships with people that God has placed in your life. Spend time with them. Listening and hearing and having those relationships. And so we begin to grow in that. It's not about us, but it's about what he is. Let me end here with this. What happens when we do? When we humble ourselves, we have the mind of Christ in us. We make it not about us, but loving others and meeting them where they are. Look at the last thing he says here. Verse 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shines a light as light in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Having an eternal perspective of relationships around you. Seeing Jesus and his glory being more important than arguing over Differences that are not of the most importance. Seeing things as they are, the most important things of, of showing what God is like. And what it says here is what God is like is he has the greatest humility to love and come to us and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so we are called to show people what God is like. Our world desperately needs people that humble themselves. That care for those around them. That meet them in the midst of the struggle and what's happening. That listen well. That love people. That point them to the love of Christ and what that means for us. And one of the most powerful ways that we can exhibit that is by humbling ourselves and really listening and caring for those around us. There's very little of that today. There's very little leadership that looks like that. And so if we take seriously our call as Christ is being formed in us. If there's any participation in the Spirit, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, complete my joy. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but count others more worthy than yourself. That will shine like a light in our world today. We pray that God would be glorified in that. And so pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel that you love us, that you meet us where we are, that you care for us. 
We thank you that you've done for us what we can never do for ourselves. I pray that we would have this mind among us. That we would love others in the way that you loved us. That we would humble ourselves. That we would care for those around us. That we would listen deeply. And that we would speak the truth and love about who you are and what you've done. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.